1: entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda
0: Carney. Hello, and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And this week, I'm delighted to be talking to Joe Irwin of Eiffel training Now, I've known Joe for many, many years, and she has a wide range of skills that we could talk about. But the one that we got talking about quite recently that I thought was worth sharing with this audience was that of interview skills. Now, before you start yawning and saying, I know all about this, she was just explaining, she often coaches both interviewees and interviewers in how to be effective at interviewing, in particular, competency interviewing and panel interviewing. And when you get into this subject, it's fascinating, actually, at how often we don't follow best practice. And if we aren't doing that, then we're potentially going to bring on board the wrong candidates. Now, we all know how expensive it is to bring in people who And not the right fit for the job. So it stands to reason we must make sure that our interviewing process is as effective as possible. And as you know, we like to be evidence based. There's lots of evidence out there that interviewing, certainly unstructured interviewing, is a really fallible way of recruiting people. So I was really keen to hear from Joe about what best practice is and some real tips for this. And one point I'll just make before I go further on this one is that when we were planning this podcast, we were thinking about the audience. Now, obviously, I recognise that many of the people out there listening to us are HR professionals, learning and development professionals. But I'm also aware we've got a few line managers who listen because quite a lot of the topics are quite broad. So we hoped that this might be something, if you're an HR professional about to involve your line managers in interviewing, that this could be something with a broader appeal and they might also find it of interest. So over to you, Joe, sitting um over there in Ireland, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself because I don't think I could do you justice having known you for far too long. So would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Oh, you're very kind there, Lucinda. Yeah, so, as you say, I'm Joe
1: Irwin, and at my training company, I began that. I set that up six and a half years ago on the back of working for a large pharmaceutical company for eighteen years, and I specialize in training people, coaching people, as you say, for both sides of the table, and of course, it is a two way process, the interview recruitment process, so I do feel with my knowledge, not only about what it takes to be an effective interviewer, but literally having coached hundreds of people at this stage who are on the receiving end of interviewers sitting on panels, I have sort of collected or collated different bits of feedback and input from these various coachees about pretty much the good, the bad, and the ugly as they've experienced it. And I do think it's a really important area that both HR professionals and line managers get their heads around, really, to ensure that, as you say, the right recruiting decisions are made.
0: Great. So I'm really keen to hear about the good, the bad and the ugly, but I guess we should maybe save that for a little bit later in the interview. Shall we just start from the basics in terms of competency-based interviewing? Now, that's a really bandied around term. Do you want to just explain what you would expect good to look like in the case of a competency-based interview?
1: Yeah, my understanding is that the majority of organisations are using competency-based interviewing, and even if they're not, they are asking questions around specific criteria or specific attributes that they are looking for for a particular role. The whole ethos behind competency-based interviewing is that past behavior is a far better predictor of future behavior. And so, competency-based technique or or process would be where you define as the hiring manager or as the organization the key competencies you're looking for so for example the ability to plan and manage resources or the ability to maintain working relationships or leadership so you define these qualities you then would provide a descriptor uh, or bullet point as I say the behaviors that would be demonstrating that particular competency what you're
0: expecting to see yeah what you're expected
1: to hear hear yeah and the more specific it is the better yeah And then within the interview, you are exploring or looking for evidence by asking candidates for past examples of when they have displayed that particular competency, say, for example, leadership. So rather than a candidate being able to sort of postulate or theorize what they might do if they were asked to lead a team, you're asking them, and it's almost like an instruction, can you describe an instance when you showed leadership or could you describe a particular project where you had the responsibility to make decisions or is actually asking people for past examples. And I do think, as you like say, the the level of confidence and competence of some people who are asked to sit on panels in this whole area is is poor. And obviously, the quality of the interviewers is directly going to affect the quality of the interview process and the experience for the candidate.
0: So, I mean, essentially, you're saying you you would want to make sure if it's a panel interview that Clearly, everybody on that panel understands the specific competencies that they're looking for and understands how to ask a competency-based question. So, yes, in your example, can you give me an example when you demonstrated this? But also the notes or the preparation is such that they would all recognise a good answer in the same way. Yeah,
1: um, and it really does come back to that, the specificity of the descriptor. So, somebody's take on what good look might look like for, for example, teamwork might be very different depending on where you're sitting. And so, the, the specificity or the accuracy of the descriptor, I think, is a really important point. Now, there are, as I say, the pros of competency-based interviewing, in my, my opinion, would be this idea that past behavior is a better predictor. And if a candidate is being truthful and is recounting an actual example of when they've shown that particular skill or ability... They will be able to specifically describe what went on. One of the issues with competency-based interviewing is that some candidates go to somebody like myself, an interview coach, and learn (laughs) off (laughs) super slick, punchy, very, very well-sounding examples of all of these different areas and possibly invent past examples or at least spin them out and pad them out to sound exactly like the descriptor that they've been provided. And unless the interviewer is able to probe effectively, unless the interviewer is able to to work effectively, you'll find that candidates can get away with that, you know, that gloss.
0: (laughs) So what would be a good way of getting underneath the gloss or being sure that someone's giving you a genuine answer? Well, I think there are several things, and I've, I've, I was thought of thinking about the podcast before
1: we met Lucinda. I think there are certain things that I would advise that can, uh, interviewers would do prior to the interview. And I know it's corny to say preparation, 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 but I think there are certain things that anybody who's been asked to sit on a panel um, are conscious of before they start. Um, and I think it is something to be really conscious of. At the end of the day, you are representing your organization. The whole point of an interview being a two-way process is that you are, you're the face of that particular department or that particular uh, organisation. I think the whole preparation and taking this really seriously is important. And then, if you like, I can move on and talk about some of the things that would be useful in terms of the digging and the probing during the interview. And I'd love to just have time to finish off with a few tips and ideas for after the interview.
0: That sounds great. So we can actually, you've got a little structure that you can run through. Yeah, if that's okay with you. Of course. I've been led the way. I feel like I'm being interviewed. I'm being taken on a journey. <laughs> Clearly an expert. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, So, yeah, let, let, let's go back to that
1: point. And so before the interview, the whole preparation point, As I I think it's really important, that if, especially if you are the one who's leading, if you are the one that's welcoming the candidate in, I think it's important just to check in with yourself, that you are, you know, you're engaged, you're enthusiastic, perhaps share a little bit about your position and the fact you've worked here for a certain time and that one of the things you love about the organization is and I'm just also then perhaps build up the fact that the the role that they're that you are interviewing for is a really important role so I think that whole first impression things I'm often talking to my candidates about the importance of first impressions but I have so many people tell me they're walking in the interviewers are not looking up they're scrabbling through their notes some of them are finishing writing notes from the last candidate and it's just a little bit all over the shop and perhaps i just think that whole professionalism and first impressions goes both ways i think that's what my point is
0: Do you know it really does And i think on that point it's it's getting increasingly important the whole area now is you want to have the best talent and actually it may have been a point once when you know it was a buyer's market but actually now it's becoming more of a seller's market so oh. first impression is really important absolutely that first impression and that then continues on of course
1: i've heard all sorts of stories about people realising that politics being played out maybe between two of the managers who are sat on the panel or somebody who's completely overbearing and spends most of the interview talking themselves I just think you need to be aware of the impression that you're giving to the other side of the table
0: those might be quite difficult I'm just thinking that might be quite difficult to deal with if you're a junior member of the panel and someone brings you in and they're talking to it. you you'd perhaps have to deal with that offline wouldn't you unless you've got any tips on managing fellow panel members
1: yeah, and actually, I can pick up on that at the end, because I do think the whole review of the whole process is something that is often missed. People run away and they don't actually then look at how things work. So,
0: so reflect on themselves. Yeah. yeah. actually, to, Yeah. Okay, that sounds
1: like a good idea. And then just moving on to some of the other things that I think are really important around that preparation. It's unbelievable how many times candidates will have told me that panel members are literally reading the CV or reading the application. And then just, let's say, lingering a little bit longer on preparation, um, Lucinda, I do think, and I've heard all sorts of stories from different candidates about panel members who are reading the CV or flicking through the application form while they're actually in their interview. I do think it's so important. And it's about showing dignity and respect, I think, for the amount of time that candidates have put into it. It's good manners. So please do read the CV and the application form and make a few notes prior to going to the interview. You know, ensure that you have an accurate job description and that if you're not the hiring manager, that you have an understanding of the competency descriptors. And possibly, and it should be done in a pre-meeting, that you have had input from the hiring manager about what particularly they're looking for or what is it that the success would look like. There is a a great question, which I ask my candidates to ask, if possible, to the, uh, the hiring manager prior to an interview, which is this. If I could ask you to imagine we're 12 months down the line and you're reviewing my first year in post, could I ask you, what have I delivered that would exceed expectations of me? Now, I think that's a really powerful question to ask somebody
0: I bet that's what the interviewers say because they've no idea how to answer it (laughs) (laughs)
1: well it's funny funny enough the number of times people have said to me that the first response they get is oh my god that's a great question just give me a moment and then they have a, you know, a pause, a lingering pause, and they maybe come up with a couple of ideas about what would delight them, what would exceed their expectations. Well, that's gold dust if you're ever going for an interview. But I think it's a really valid question for interviewers and certainly the hiring manager to share with their fellow panel members, because you're really focusing down and tailoring what can be quite a It's like a tsunami of information is going to come across the table to you with all these various people going past on the conveyor belt. That really focuses everybody on the panel to what exactly does good look like and what is it specifically the hiring manager is wanting in that?
0: What I like about that, Joe, I think is also the fact that We've talked about competency-based interviewing. I I haven't researched this recently. And they think that it's actually past performance is a predictor of future performance. Yet, if you see that on a share certificate, they would say they wouldn't guarantee that past performance isn't going to guarantee future performance. Um, So what you're also doing is almost future pacing it so that everyone's thinking, you're giving people a, a fair chance because there might be some people who are They haven't had the opportunity to evidence every single competency or bit of experience, but they've got the potential to.
1: Yeah. And that's really interesting, actually, because I know of several large organisations who actually recruit people who are able to perform at 85% of the level needed. So rather than recruiting somebody in who can do the job with their eyes half closed, they recruit people who are 85 or maybe 90% there so that there is room for them to grow. They feel they're going to be more motivated and they'll grow into the role. And I think that's a really interesting concept. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and so then once you've, as I say, you if you have a question plan, my top tip really, and this is also, I'm not an, you know, an employee law expert or anything in terms of legislation, but I do think if you have a question plan. And you've derived that purely from the job description and the competencies, the the descriptors of the competencies, then you're far more likely to stay on the right side of the line, as in you're not going to be asking anything irrelevant or not related to the job. I would always have a question plan. And if you are very new to interviewing, this is where you might go to a HR professional to ask, could you just check that this is going to be in line with company Policies and within uh, employment legislation. I think that's important.
0: Do you recommend? I remember once going to an interview, being recommended to use a model called STAR situation, task, action, result, or where you could either tell the candidate that that's how you're interviewing them or uh, request back from them. Or well, are there any models that you recommend? Well, STAR is the
1: most universally used one, yeah. So you have your situation, you have your task, then your actions. And I'd always suggest that people bullet point those actions as an interviewee because it keeps you and it keeps the panel on track (laughs) from finishing with your result. And interesting, you mentioned future pacing, Lucinda. That would be something I think a lot of people don't do is that once you finish your example, you've described your situation and what you did, you then go on and say, why is this beneficial? Why would this relate to the role or why does this make you Able to do the job you're going for. So, I do think a star would be the most certainly well used model within the competency based method.
0: And would you encourage the interviewers to say, to tell them that's what you're going to ask? Or would you say, please, so what exactly did you do? How would you tell an interviewer to? Well, it tends to be outlined certainly over here in
1: Ireland um, and a lot of the candidates that I would be coaching, that would be part of the way the application form is laid out nowadays. It has become quite structured. And some people would argue a little bit overly rigid. And I do think, again, that comes down to the skill of the interviewer, that it doesn't just seem like a a conveyor belt of a process, that there's still some personality involved. that it's a little bit softer. But literally, I've had people go in. They're not even asked a warm-up question. It's literally, we're starting with the first competency, planning and organizing. Can you give me an example of? And it just becomes very, very rigid.
0: I mean, is there room for personality for for that gut feel or any of that into an interview, you know, if you came down to it, if you were being really, really objective, it's almost we could do it through AI, wouldn't we? But there's this human gut feel, although I'm sure it's probably been proven to be inaccurate gut feel, but anyway.
1: Yeah, I think the, I mean, as I say, the the thinking behind competency-based interviewing is meant to be, in inverted commas, fairer. And it's meant to ensure that people provide the evidence or they don't provide the evidence. And actually, it's one of the things I'm going to mention about in terms of tips or good practice while you're actually running an interview is that your previous knowledge of a candidate must not or should not be used if you are somebody who's internally interviewing somebody that you prior, you know, you have prior knowledge of. And I think that's where the HR professional and often the chair, you know, is they do have a key part to play to ensure that evidence is not, uh, you know, it's only the evidence rather that's That's produced by the the candidate that is scored. Mm. Um, And that removes this bias, be that Mm. conscious or unconscious bias that people will have. There's nothing that's perfect. Competency-based interviewing isn't a perfect process. I don't think there is, but it is meant to be more accurate and and more equitable. Yeah. One little tiny thing, just one tiny little tip, actually. Now, this was something that somebody mentioned to me, which I thought was a great idea. I'd say, hopefully, you've got your interview panels lined up. You've got your your people prepped. uh, You've shared the competencies. You've maybe highlighted what you would like specifically just one last thing. I wish, wish, I just wish an interviewer, one of the three, one of the four on the panel, actually just before the first candidate comes into the room, takes a seat in the chair that will be sat in by the candidates.
0: Oh, put themselves in their shoes, just feel
1: it. Exactly. But just get into that other chair. I've had people tell me that where they've been sat, they've been sat under um, an air conditioning vent that has blown literally freezing cold air down their neck all the way through their interview. Or I've had a couple of candidates tell me that they were sat so close to the interview they practically have their knees touching or the sun is glaring through the window um, and obviously the interviewers hadn't even noticed because they're sat with their back to it so I just think it's a tiny point but it actually just makes sure that you second position you put yourself in the shoe
0: it's a massive human point isn't it to give people the chance yeah. to do their yeah. best yeah and if you're an interviewee having the guts to say the sun's in my eyes could it be okay to move it it's- Coach people for, but it depends how nervous you are. Absolutely, you want to get there, but you're wanting to get the
1: best out of the candidate. You really are wanting to put them at ease. They're, they're likely to, as I say, give a far better interview if you just give them the opportunity to do so. I think that's my point. Yeah, fair point. Okay, so like you say, you're moving me on, and I do think it's right. Let's move on and just talk about my sort of top tips, if you like, for during the interview. We really are wanting to assure, as I say, that people are at ease, and I think the opener. The opening question is critical. I don't know what you've heard used or whether you can reflect
0: on it you've oh, had. I've heard some awful
1: I've had some awful ones,
0: really. Go yeah. on, give us, give us a few juicy, awful ones just to warm us up. If you've got any of your tongue.
1: Well, just, people have told me that they've had questions such as, I've noticed on your CV that you did a master's in 19-something and something. Uh, could you tell me a bit about the detail of that thesis? You know, a oh, complete... <laughs> so they are I guess wanting to show that they've read the paperwork but it completely throws a candidate who
0: you know it's not really relevant I tell you what quite often I remember being asked is they'd go oh can you talk me through your CV Well you're never quite sure how long or short to make that really because yeah I always think is well yeah what's your opinion on that as a question?
1: No, I'm really pleased you said that one because that's the classic. Talk me through your CV or even more. Well, let's say it's tell me about yourself. Oh, God, gosh, where do you start? (laughs) (laughs) And I have had candidates tell me literally they spent six, seven minutes going from primary school, literally primary school forward without. Well, first of all, the panel are half asleep. Secondly, they can read. So you can see from their CV exactly where they've been. Um, and you're not really selling or promoting yourself. So I just don't think that's giving the candidate a fair chance to begin the interview in a, in a confident, assertive way and, and let you set their stall up, if you like. So I think my, my choice, it is, it is, it's lazy. It is warm up. I know it's warm up. They don't always often officially mark that opening question, although it might come into the overall communication skills mark. But I think the best I would be promoting would be, or advocating would be, obviously, welcome them, explain the process. But then, so, you know, briefly, could you take us through your experience or career, perhaps highlighting two or three things that you believe are particularly relevant to this role? So you're just helping them focus down on a couple of pieces of their experience or a couple of attributes that they could bring to the job. So that would be my opener. Yeah, okay. That, I like that. And then this big challenge of probing effectively. So I'd like people to sort of think that they're detectives. I mentioned one of the big drawbacks of competency-based interviewing is that you have these super prepared, super slick (laughs) candidates who have practiced and practiced and practiced and recorded themselves. And they're absolutely spot on with their lovely little examples against all the competencies. And you have to be able to, number one, dig deeper. You've got to be able to challenge any generalizations they're using. um, And you really need to be gathering specific evidence. If the candidate is giving a truthful, actual example that they were involved in, they shouldn't have difficulty recalling the specifics or the details. It's very, very easy to unpick or uncover somebody that's, that's blagging it, as I would say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Give us an example of generalizations that people might come across in, in an interview. Well, they would just be, you know, and
1: everybody thought it was a great project. Yeah. Uh, and this result was really significant for the team. You know, you'd be straight in with, that sounds fantastic. Tell me, how did you judge the significance of that? Or what evidence did you have to know that everybody was on board with your idea?
0: And what was your role in the in the decision-making? Where everybody, everybody, what did you do within it? Because I have had people talk about something as if it was theirs when actually they were just a supporting member. So it's finding out what their role is quite key, isn't it? It is. And actually the opposite of that.
1: You'll often find that people, as I, I joke, do a lot of weeing. They talk about we did this and we did that and we then did such and such and in fact they're they're not selling the team they shouldn't be but they find maybe with nerves or lack of awareness they start talking about the team and selling their team and they don't talk specifically about what they did so you get two you get some people bigging it up and some people underselling
0: and that's perhaps an indication of actually being a team player because quite often we'd say we to be modest and if you can drill and say well actually I did that and I did that 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 allows you to see where they're coming from and the fact that they're not they're not overplaying it, I suppose that might be a positive attribute.
1: I just think maybe it's a cultural thing. We're not great at selling ourselves. We do underplay our, our part or our involvement. And An interview is a selling opportunity. It is a sales process. You do really need to be able to highlight what you bring to the team. And I, I mean, I remember only a few weeks ago, somebody was telling me about an audit that they've been involved in. He was saying that, you know, we, well, we gathered the data, we went to so-and-so, we, we did this analysis we compared it and I said that's interesting Coming how many people were part of that audit team and he said oh no it was only me (laughs) so there wasn't even a team but he was selling it (laughs) yeah um so I think you get a bit of both you get some people trying to, to to big it up and most people I find with nerves are underplaying their involvement so now the key thing with the probing and I think this is this is a real issue I feel that interviewers often feel that they're being unkind or impolite in to, to interrupt, especially if somebody is on a flow that they are nervous about sticking in a pro- appropriate, an appropriate probing question. And there are two things that I would do or I would suggest to help with that. The first one is warn the candidate prior that you will interrupt and probe to be able to find out more, but put a real positive spin on it. So, For example, you might say, well, I'm going to be taking the first competency, which is teamwork, and I'll be asking you for a specific example. Now, during your recount of your example, I will occasionally jump in and ask a couple of clarifying questions. Don't be put off. It's purely if I want to find out a little bit more information and give you the best opportunity to describe your skills and your attributes. Nice. So I would always warn the candidate because often the candidate will be thinking, oh, gosh, am I rubbish? They've just interrupted me again. I, I must be terrible. Or if I feel that you're going off on the point off point, I might just guide you gently back with a probing question. I just think that whole reframe really helps the candidate and their nerves. And then a second tip about using probing questions is do it early. So if you allow somebody to get near the end of their actions or to their result, and you haven't got in there with a probing question. I just don't think it's as, a, as effective as you jumping in early. So as I'm setting up my star by describing my situation, come in with one of the where, the when, or the who open questions. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me when was that project or tell me who was involved in the project or where specifically within the business was that unit that you're working on. So come in early in the star. I just think people are more accepting then of your appropriate probing as you go through that. Are
0: you saying it's? It sort of builds trust because you're asking it early. So, even though you're not really needing to clarify at that stage, you're saying just to set the expectation that you might chip in and it's not uncomfortable. Make it more of a conversation rather than the question. And a-
1: Yeah. And it doesn't seem so much of a Spanish inquisition or, you know, it does take a little bit of that rigidity or structure out of it. But I, I say maybe that you do want the answer. It may be that you don't, but it's still useful. It's got to have a, a purpose to it. But you just come in and early on, people will expect you then to to interrupt later. And I guess that leads me to my next one. So the open questions is obviously what we're using. We all know the difference between closed questions, open questions, but the the type of open question that you use within that, they talk about the funnel. So you have a funneling technique to take somebody through a star. So if you can imagine uh, a funnel with the S, the T, the A and the R as you're going down, you'd use your open questions, where, when and who near the top of the star. And then you're moving into the what, the how, and the why as you go down near the bottom. Now, you probably found yourself, Lucinda, that there is different uh, impact of different questions. I have to say, over the 20-odd years I've been training, I found why the least useful of the open questions.
0: It's the most dangerous.
1: Yeah, I find people get a little bit defensive, or it's just that little bit extra challenging. So if you were in an interview with me and you might be saying, you know, this was a particularly challenging project, if I go and say why, I just think it's that little bit more direct to me saying what made it challenging? When was it challenging? How was it challenging? In what way was it challenging? I just, and I've found that when I've been running role plays within my interviewer training course, a lot of people use a lot of why, and they've never had the awareness that they do it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That might be the kind of thing you're asking your fellow panel members as part of the reflecting.
0: Why did you use that question? (laughs) Yeah, why on earth did you use that question?
1: (laughs) But one of these things, it is something that people are really, really unconscious of. Yeah, good tip, good tip. Yeah, yeah. So follow your plan, treat every candidate fairly. You mustn't be leading candidates Again, we mentioned earlier, if people are using a lot of we, talking a lot of team, just ensure that you ask them specifically what they did, uh, because that's what we should be interviewing for.
0: Great. No, those are really good tips. Have you any more tips? I was going to say, I've got my notes here. I wanted to hear from you about how, it, one, one thing the that's coming through, I was thinking just when you were speaking then, is that a lot of this is coming from experience. That Actually, it makes sense that if you were interviewing on a regular basis, you think how to introduce yourself, how to position questions, you do a better mm. job of it. But the reality is that lots of people just come in from nowhere and have to do it and they don't have this. So all if we wrapped all these and then when you're about to go and be an interviewer, you have all these tips to hand. But of course, also there's a process where you reflect on it. And I know you said you were going to talk a bit about how you could top and tail the process effectively.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But you know, the interesting thing, just when you said that to me, Lucinda, is, and I said this yesterday when I ran the course, a lot of the skills we're talking about here in terms of, say, for example, using effective open questions and as I've added on there, trying to avoid the why. These are skills that are going to be beneficial in all areas of work and actually out of work. Absolutely. So, yes, good communication. Uh, one skills. of the, yeah, one final point I was going to add on, and I do think this is, is to always try to think myself: what are the what are the nuggets? What are the real golden nuggets about all the training that I've run over the years? One of them is absolutely the use of reflections. I personally think if you can get into the habit of using reflective listening frequently both at home, at work, uh, you know, it just is something that then you're using without even having to engage brain when you're in an interview. And when you're interviewing somebody, the use of reflections, I think, is so beneficial. Let me explain. So, you might, going back to the example, you might be saying that this was a really challenging process. I think it's perfectly adequate, you know, perfectly fine to come in with an open question. But actually, to make the candidate feel more at ease. And I actually find they give more information if you use a reflection. So you just literally reflect back the word challenging.
0: Like empathic listening.
1: I find that people then go on and give more. Absolutely. All of those skills are as relevant in an interview as they are anywhere else in business or anywhere else at home. And if HR professionals are listening and they're involved in coaching, it would be a technique that would be beneficial across the board. You don't necessarily have to have a whole brand new set of skills to be a good interviewer. It's just engaging these great communication skills.
0: It's like if someone's really, it's like empathic listening that Covey talks about in The Seven Habits. It's the whole thing sometimes just picking on that emotion, but with a question mark at the end of it. So you're not, you know, the difference of what you're doing there is much more suitable in an interview because you're stating the actual word that they've stated um, whereas, hmm. if you're in an emotional situation, you might sort of infer emotion from something uh, there, which is probably not appropriate for interviewing to kill yeah, yeah, no,
1: and it can be useful to de escalate yes. emotion, can't it? But I think in an interview, the way that I ask people to use it within an interview situation is that if you, account- let's put ourselves back in that chair, let's put ourselves in the chair of the candidate again. You're wanting to feel. That the panel are actually listening to you, number one. Yeah. And you want to feel that you're making sense and that you're doing a good job because that's going to allow you to do a better interview. So, the way I use the reflections is actually I would cushion a question with a reflection. So, you're talking away about your example of where you have shown the ability to manage a project. And I would use that reflection. That sounds like that was a very complex situation, Lucinda, with a lot of people involved. Could you tell me how you went about engaging the stakeholders and the community? Yeah. So I just give a little summary reflection, really. It doesn't have to be a key word like we had challenging. It could just be a little summary reflection of what the candidates just said and then use that to lead into an open question rather than just saying, how did you involve the stakeholders? I would just reflect first. It sounds like a very complicated situation. How did you go about involving the stakeholders? I mean, people tell me how there are definite interviewers that make you feel like you're making sense and you're doing a good job and that's want. <laughs> without leading yeah. without leading and saying that that's a great answer you can still show respect and reflectively listen
0: even if you don't get the job you feel better if someone's doing that what it occurs to me of course it's quite hard to properly listen and ask those questions and make notes you know when people are trying to scribble furiously I am so happy you said that. I'm so happy you said that. because You didn't I even queue me up. That was a genuine I question. Know, I, know, <laughs> I know, I know. But
1: actually, you know, one of the things I had, I had meant to say earlier in the preparation, people will be familiar with the fact that you normally would have, say, three on a panel. That seems to be the norm, really. Um, and you would have, ideally, really clear roles and responsibilities. So somebody would be asking the questions on a particular competency. Somebody else should be note-taking. You should definitely not be writing notes while you're doing the questioning. And then ideally, the third person should be observing. Okay? And that observation is really key. I've had a lot of candidates tell me, you'll have one person doing a question and one or two people writing notes or even worse, one person asking the question, one person writing the notes, and the other person furiously reading the CV or the application form because they're doing the next one and they haven't done their prep. Yeah. And it's really off-putting when they're flicking through the paperwork yeah. when you're trying to engage the panel. So, yeah, a questioner, a note-taker, separate and then an observer separate. So that's that's a useful thing. And just on that point, I think it's interesting, the number of interviewers that will tell me how some panels are open to the fact that you can chip in, maybe as the observer, with a really useful probing question. And some can, interviewers are very, very precious about the fact, no, I'm taking teamwork. And if you dare jump in across me, Or hell will break loose. So I think that's something important just to clarify up front. Are we allowed to jump in or are we just sticking strictly to our own competency?
0: Well that's like doing something with another trainer, isn't it? Whether they're comfortable chipping in or not. And a lot of it comes down to confidence, I would say, on that person question, or you know, the at how established the relationship is between the Absolutely
1: panel. and if you can interview on a panel and do that with similar people you do get so much from that whole reflection piece but just again remember let's put ourselves back in the chair of the interviewee how does it look when there's this sort of game playing going on from the other side of the table so that's why it's important just to agree up front am I happy to or not happy for you to jump in with something that's relevant that's all it's just a tiny point.
0: Oh you've set me off on a tangent now <laughs> I was just thinking about rapport yeah. so I would be allowed to chip in with someone who I've got rapport with but I wonder then if we'd all have the same view of the candidate because we're so friendly we also oh, obviously we wouldn't because we'd be using objective examples from the competency that's it
1: yeah and prior prior knowledge or previous knowledge should not be taken into account absolutely
0: okay so let's oh, we must wrap up i guess
1: so afterwards i've oh, got yeah. just three, tips, about three top tips for yes. after three top tips for afterwards so number one is leave enough time oh my goodness the number of times uh interviewers managers will tell me that the interview overran, it never goes to time, and we were rushing through the scoring and then everyone ran away. It is a really, really important thing to have enough time, not only for the scoring of the candidates, but also for the discussion, particularly if you know there's a big disparity between the scores. So you know, after all the hard work and the whole day that's been put in, it's just important that you leave enough time.
0: How, how much tip. time should you leave to discuss it? And should it be between the candidates? Between the candidates as in, so I'm, I'm just thinking logically. I think you should have the discussion. You don't want to run out. You should have the discussion before the next candidate comes in. Otherwise, everything's drifted into one. I would have thought, and you get the recency effect. You know, you just it's yeah. I'm just so, how long do you think you need after you finish an interview to? I think it all depends, actually, on
1: on a the number of candidates and b how long in each of the interviews themselves are. So. The best practice, Lucinda, which moves to my second point, is that you individually as a a panel member would score the candidate against the descriptor of the competency alone. You would do that scoring yourself prior to even anyone discussing how well they
0: did. Yeah. So you want some private time first to capture. So if you are interviewing back to back, the least you need is time to go and do your own evaluation on your paperwork before you do the discussion later.
1: Yeah. So in between candidates, you need to leave adequate time for everyone to individually score the candidate. Now, then, ideally, you don't then start looking at those scores till, well, not necessarily the end of the day. If you've 10, I mean, I've heard people who are interviewing 10 or 12 candidates in a day, which is ridiculous, but I know that might be the case for some some organizations. But you're not discussing each candidate after each candidate, necessarily. It might be that you take a break before the lunch or after the break that you would look at the scores. Some people would leave all of the comparison of the scores to the end of the day, because at the, the the whole thing with the competency based interviewing is you are comparing candidates against the descriptors of the competencies. You're not comparing candidates against candidates. Yes, that's critical. So you're isn't not it? saying she yeah. she better. Wasn't she better than that one before coffee? Yeah. Or Jeepers, she was so much stronger. Wasn't she than her? So the, it, it it does become quite a sort of
0: a it's human a numerical thing this is my this
1: is my score Mm. for me yeah oh absolutely so difficult not to compare candidates with candidates that's the big challenge we're still human beings at the end of the day however much structure they like to apply on us but you are scoring the candidate against the competencies and you're not scoring the candidates against each other
0: what would you do if you get a tie in that it's all mathematical in the end what would be the natural next step there well, the scoring tends to very, very
1: rarely would you get a tie. You, you're looking for repeated evidence. So this would what be happening. So let's say we've seen a candidate. I came up with a score of 50 out of 100 and you've scored that candidate 70. The idea that you don't want to be just say, well, let's just get an average and give them 60. We would then go back to the notes. We go back to the evidence to have a look at what has led us to have such a difference in our scoring. Okay. We'd be looking for repetition of evidence, we'd be looking at the competency descriptor, and we'd be wanting to come to one of us rounding up or rounding down and agreeing to go with the consensus rather than just doing a quick, easy average.
0: Yeah, okay, that makes sense.
1: And I do think that's where the HR professional or the, you know, the, um, the you know, the, the neutral in the room is absolutely key to ensure that there is an internal bias going on or prior knowledge being told you know as in oh I know she didn't say that she did x y and z but I know she runs projects like that all the time that's why I gave okay, her bias.
0: yeah absolutely it can't be. it's not, not allowed to it's happen it's a calibration so. almost a role that they're doing in interviews isn't it it is absolutely it does become a kind of a mathematical thing um it would, so I haven't heard many
1: times where it comes to an exact tie but you would be going back the the answer is you go back to the evidence <laughs> yes of course and if somebody fails one of the competencies, it's usual that they then fail the interview process.
0: Because you, yes, you need at least a pass on all of them, basically. You need to leave yeah. a pass on all of them. That okay.
1: So, and then the final point, just to finish off, is that whole point of reviewing. This is an important communication process. This is an important process overall for any business or organization to make the right recruitment and hiring decisions. That I think it's key that at the end of all of that, when the you know the, the, the candidate has been selected for for the job offer that the panel reviews how well they performed you know how did it go do we have big differences if we did what was the difference with those and the ones where we came in close or which questions do we think really got to the the crux of issues, and then you personally go and self-reflect yourself. And again, it's all great to talk theory, isn't it, Lucinda? But the idea would be that any particularly useful questions that you either used yourself or you heard one of your fellow panel members using, that you keep yourself a little question log, scribble them down in your diary. It's a learned skill. No more than presenting, no more than any of these skills, coaching skills. The more you do, the better you get. But it is about uh, reflecting on the fact that that's something that you, you have responsibility to do either not to be stale because you've just always done it one way or another, or if you're not having um, had a lot of ex- experience that you can be confident that you'll get the competency to do it well.
0: That's comprehensive, Joe. I'm not surprised, of course, but uh, <laughs> no, that, that was really comprehensive. Thank you very much. And I, and I suppose so just summarising, we've talked about why competency interviews are a good thing, how we can develop our competency interviewing skills, how to... S- prepare for it. One thing that's coming through very clearly is it's not about just showing up and just looking at a CV and going with the flow to do a good job. And we really should remember that when we reflect on it, all of us really would want to give the candidate the best possible chance. So we need to prepare questions, understand what we're looking for, make sure they're right, make sure we're aligned with our panel members, understand how to ask good quality probing questions and get into that from the start, set the expectation. I really liked that bit about setting the expectation to the candidate that, that we were going to ask questions so that it doesn't scare them and it doesn't put them off, and then close it, not just in terms of reviewing the candidate, but in re- reviewing our own performance as an interview panel or an interviewer. And that overall, you can see that that is going to, it's going to take longer, but it's going to be much more effective, good quality process and fairer.
1: Yeah, no, at the end of the day, as you said, it's not just the cost of actually pulling managers off to sit on panels or setting up to, to run a selection of interviews. It's the cost to the organization of it not being the right decision yeah. in terms of who they hire, that it just makes sense for people to take it. I'd say take it seriously, but also to have confidence that you can get better and better at effective interviewing. And that will stand to you in all However far or high you go, do you know what I mean? It's just okay. something that's useful, and of course, useful outside of the interview room itself. All the skills are completely transferable to other areas of work.
0: Totally, totally, all, yeah. all personal life in terms of, <laughs> of people, <laughs> catch up with long lost friends. No, that's great. So, thanks so much, Joe. I guess we we try to keep our, our interviews, or interviews, conversations, um, quite focused. So that's been brilliant and really succinct. What I'll do is I'll put in the show notes some links to your website. Uh, and any social media links. So if people want to connect with you or otherwise, then uh, they can find you, if that's all right. Great. Thanks very much, Lucinda. It's been great fun. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Joe. Okay, so thanks, everybody. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of the HR Uprising, found it highly informative. I certainly did. And uh, remember, this is something, hopefully we thought this episode might be of use to people who are outside of HR. So if you've got a manager joining you to... Um, supporting interviewing perhaps it's something that could be more widely used around your organization as ever please do keep the feedback coming on the sort of topics that you'd like to hear about and i really welcome connections on social media and any other feedback that you want to give us many thanks for your time i hope you enjoyed this episode of the hr uprising i'm your host lucinda carney goodbye Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.